Hi, I'm Heather Ellis, your host on Our Stories, Ending HIV Stigma, a podcast by women living with HIV, where we share our stories of our diverse lives and challenge the myths and stereotypes that feed HIV stigma. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project, made possible by Gilead Sciences and produced by Positive Women Victoria in Australia. Georgina Whitchurch has been living with HIV for seven years. Her story begins in Eswatini, formerly Swaziland, in southern Africa. After a career in hospital management, Georgina followed her passion for sewing and joined Australian Volunteers International. As a 64-year-old retiree, she took on the role of teaching sewing to women at Naswini village. But the charms of a local man soon changed her life forever. While effective HIV treatments gave her back her health, this did not end her commitment to volunteering. She soon returned to Africa as a volunteer independently and for two years continued teaching sewing to rural women. After returning to Australia, Georgina put her management skills to good use and recently took on the role Chair of Positive Women Victoria. Welcome, Georgina, to Our Stories Ending HIV Stigma. Thank you, Heather. Great to to have you. You've got such an interesting story. I just wanted to start by asking, with volunteering in Africa, it's not the usual choice for uh, somebody going into retirement. How did this come about for you? I guess it was something that was in the back of my mind for a long time. I enjoyed reading people's stories about volunteering overseas. And one night, just out of the blue, as things happen, I was on the computer And I decided to open up Australian Volunteers International and just have a look and see what was there. And I had to scroll through 50 pages that were, you know, it was absolutely loaded with assignments that were coming up until I got to the S area and there was sewing skills trainer and my little heart jumped because I love sewing and I've always wanted to impart my skills and my knowledge of sewing. And then I read where it was and I thought, oh, oh, no, I can't go to Africa. And this little voice on the on, on my shoulder said, yes, you can and you're going. Did you realise that sewing skills would help these women escape poverty? Oh, definitely, yes. And for these women living in a village where there's no electricity, there's no sanitation, there's no fresh running water, that is drinkable, they have to boil everything. It was an incredible journey and so my aim was to get them to a fantastic quality where they could ask a really good price for what they were sewing. And the organisation that they sort of loosely came under, because this sewing program was organised by an independent missionary couple that were living in Swaziland and had been there for a long time, they've actually opened a shop where all of their goods are now sold. Uh, I was back there in, well, last year actually, I was back there and saw the shop and saw what they were doing. And What are the products that they're making? So they had uh, hand-operated machines initially and what they were making when I arrived there was bags. And so we continued on that theme, but with some new designs that I'd introduced and a lot of quality control, They then went on to doing um, cushion covers, aprons, small coin purses, stuffed animals that obviously represent Africa. 
So were these sold to tourists? Is that where the buyers of the products were? Yes. The missionary organisations there have a huge network. And so when any missionary people come into the country, they're linked up with the missionary organisations that exist there and they're taken to all these places to see what is being done. And so a lot of those visitors to the country buy heaps and heaps and heaps of things from them. But also now, you know, they do have this little shop in a tourist location. So they are selling quite well there. Towards the end of my stay, those women were earning in the vicinity of a thousand rand a month, which is a hundred dollars in Australian terms. But that thousand rand a month, they had never seen money like that. Never. What was it like living in, in Swaziland in a village? Were you living in the village where you were teaching? No, I lived in a different compound where there were about eight houses. There was only three white people living there. Everyone else was um, native to the to the country. And me, of course, I was the sewing lady because I, I when I had a reasonable dwelling that we could get to fairly easily, I bought three electric sewing machines and I used to pick the ladies up three at a time and bring them to the house and they would sew for a day on these electric machines. Fantastic. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit now about having a HIV test in Africa and how that came about. I became quite unwell and it was even after, you know, there had been a person from AVI um, headquarters in, in Melbourne had visited us and I just happened to have a, a lesion on, on my forehead, which, you know, I, I took no notice of. It wasn't anything. And she said, oh, I think you better get that checked out. And I didn't because... I knew that, you know, it was it was nothing. But unfortunately, I ended up then with a lesion in, in my mouth, in the side of my, my cheek. And I started feeling quite unwell. So I went to the doctor then. And um, after a, a day of being on medication, I actually collapsed at home, lost consciousness, um, hit the floor, landed on my coccyx, which really woke me up well and truly, and went back to that doctor and I was put into hospital. And while I was there, they were doing lots and lots and lots of tests and eventually they tested for HIV. And Even though they've, the doctors in Africa, and particularly Southern Africa, would be very familiar with HIV, they wouldn't have thought to test a 64-year-old white woman from Australia for HIV. I mean, it would be like here in Australia. It would be the last thing they would test. You would be probably on your deathbed before they would, they would test for HIV. So why did they decide to do that? It's just because it is in Africa and they are familiar with the symptoms? The doctor that was looking after me, you know, they, they all have so much experience with HIV because it is very, very prevalent in that particular country in Africa. I think they have the highest rate he obviously thought, well, this is the only thing we can do now is is do this. And so he did and that was it. And so, you know, we became arch enemies after the diagnosis because I I didn't behave very well at all. I was a very bad patient. What do you mean by that? Like accept the diagnosis? I accepted it, but I didn't really want to be where I was and still in hospital and being cared for. I just wanted to go away and hide and find a cave and just yeah be unseen and so this was in 2014 so effective HIV medications had been around then for 17 years and you know people when they were more than surviving they were thriving and going about and living fully healthy productive lives 
But do you, did you know about the treatments? Did you know anything about HIV prior to your diagnosis? No, no, because I, uh, you know, all I knew was years ago with the, the Grim Reaper. So, you know, that was the first thing that probably came to my mind was that's it. I'm out, I'm out of this planet in a few years' time. The doctor would have reassured you about the treatments, I imagine, because they were, would have been well aware of them. And, and you know, these treatments um, are available in Africa as a generic brand. So were you reassured about the treatments? And did that make you feel better about your, the future? While I was uh, still in Swaziland, yes, um, that doctor was absolutely amazing and you know, even though we we had a really bad start while I was in hospital, when I was out and seeing him as an outpatient, our relationship changed. And I certainly, you know, take my hat off to him and, and the way he, he then treated me and talked to me and tried to look after me as best he could. And then, of course, yeah, I was I was started on medication instantly, even though my CD4 count was very high. But of course, the viral load was also extremely high. And so he started me on medication, even though their rule of thumb was your CD4 count had to be at below 300 before they would start you on medication. And mine was over 500. So he started me and, you know, I started to feel pretty normal almost instantly. You know, it was incredible how, how quickly that medication changed me. When you had the, the lesion on your face and inside your mouth, was that a seroconversion illness or had the vi- had you had the virus for, for some time? I can't say that I'd had it for some time, but it wasn't really, you know, that wasn't explored. Yeah. And I suppose because of being in, in, um, in Africa, they didn't really have a lot of the testing equipment to go really deep into that. But if it was before, it was well over 10 years prior to that, that anything could have happened. But of course, there was this interlude with the African, the charming African man. And So was HIV talked about in the village where you were working? And were any of the women in your sewing classes, you know, living with or affected by HIV? I was aware that the majority of them were, yeah. and I was aware of them, you know, getting medication on a, on a regular basis. And because of the organisation that I had sort of loosely attached myself to while I was there, and it was mostly through their sewing program, because it was their program, I was just the teacher, it wasn't my program at all. They ran a service in that country to test and treat. They started off testing and treating children probably about eight years prior to me going there. And then they can they expanded that service as they got more money available to testing all people and in uh, in particular living out in that rural location they had a huge presence out there and so I knew from them even though you know confidentiality was never ever ever breached I just knew from them that a lot of the women that I was working with had HIV but it was never spoken about they did not talk about it. So was there a, a support group in the village that you could connect with to get that peer support? When I returned, yes, and I had spoken to this particular missionary organisation wanting to do something like that, and they indicated that their staff were already doing that, so you know it wasn't something that I could do. However, in the village where I lived, in the compound where I lived, the other white people living there they had a maid who became sick 
and was tested and she was positive. And so they asked me to come and talk to her, feeling that, you know, somebody of my age and, and my status, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, talking to her would make her sit up and, and take note because she didn't want to go on medication. And then by you talking to her and giving her that peer support, she would understand, well, well, HIV is something that can happen to, to everybody and going on and it's completely okay. It's just something that happens. You can take treatments and you'll live a healthy, long, long life. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, they were very thankful and so was she, especially after she started taking the medication and felt very different to what she was before. From your diagnosis, you were telling me that you then had to leave and return to Australia, but that didn't stop you, did it? It didn't stop your volunteering, your passion for volunteering. I think my passion was just to get back to those women because... I had fallen in love with Swaziland and I'd fallen in love with those women and what we were doing and what we could achieve and what they could get from it. But while yeah. I'm looking at what they can get, I realised how much I got from that particular program. It was amazing working with those women who they don't have what we have they don't live in houses with you know painted walls etc etc and and you know everything that we've got but they are so happy and they're just so full of love when you returned to Australia did you have the support of your family and did you reach out to the HIV support groups like positive women when you returned to Australia I first returned to Western Australia, which which is my state of origin, and my son was still living there, and so I stayed with with him because I I'd packed everything up because I was going to be gone for over two years, and so I eventually discovered or, or managed to get in touch with West Australian AIDS Council, and so through that, through that, and meeting other other people. Yeah, other, other women living with HIV. It was, it was actually an interesting journey for me because Western Australia, in comparison to Victoria, the, the situation of HIV with women in those days anyway was, was um, very, very small. They, didn't, they only had a very small group of uh, women that were, you know, were, were actually registered with the agency. But when we did meet, you know, it was really nice to just yep. share stories with other people. Then out of the blue, I think I'd only been with them for a very short time and I was asked would I be available to look after somebody who similar age to me was just diagnosed. And I said yes, not not a problem, not a problem. You know, any help. And so having done that and then that sort of crept into a little group of about six of us women similar age and we just started our own little little group because we all got on well together. We used to meet every month or two months and go to different places and, and it was a fantastic group. It was good. Then I went back to Swaziland and when I returned, I came to uh, Victoria because my son had and my daughter-in-law had moved and they were living in Melbourne and so I didn't want to go back to Western Australia because he's my only family. I also want to ask you about stigma because this podcast is about ending HIV stigma. 
And many of us have experienced some form of stigma, whether it's uh, internalised or externalised or by association. So what has your experience of stigma been? I think in the very beginning, the the treatment that I received from the volunteer agency was very, very, very hard. I was virtually treated as a prisoner. I was not allowed to have any contact with any of the women. I was not allowed to leave my house except for you know it was like was like COVID I could only leave the house if I needed to go shopping or something and then they were trying to get certain information out of the doctor who was treating me and he refused to give them information because of confidentiality and you know looking after my interests he wouldn't give that information to them so they then sent me to Johannesburg in South Africa And again, I was virtually imprisoned. Um, I wasn't allowed to go too many places unless I told them where I was. They were then, they sent me then to a specialist. And when I went there, I had to sign a form to say that, um, you know, he could talk to other people about his findings. And so he then supplied them with the information that they wanted. So it was a complete breach of confidentiality. Yes. Uh, let me just, you know, sit there and rot virtually. My son was on the verge of getting on the plane and coming over to to rescue me when they decided that they would let me go back to Swaziland, pack up and leave the country. Were you able to say goodbye to the women that you were teaching? Yes, I did. Yeah, And they would have been very confused as to why you were suddenly leaving when you didn't want to leave. Uh, they knew that I was ill. Um, But I don't know that they knew what it was, but, you know, they're not silly. They would have known. We we arranged a picnic in the park, which we had done prior to that. You know, I often used to take them to this particular place and we'd buy a cooked chook and a few other bits and pieces and we'd go and sit and have a picnic. And so we arranged this picnic and... um, it was it was a very, very, very emotional experience. I don't think there was a dry eye out of the whole group. You know, we were all crying. It was very, very hard to leave them. And, and then when I went back, it was the opposite. They were absolutely over the moon. They were dancing. They were singing, as you know how they are. You know, they dance, they sing to everything. And they just would not leave me alone. You know, they, they were all over me like a rash and I did not complain at all. It just felt as though I'd gone home. Mm. And you stayed there then for another two years as a a volunteer independently, you know, and helping these women. And they do want me back. Great. So hopefully after COVID, you will be able to return to Africa. Yes, I think I do what I can here to keep myself buoyant and inspired and, and interested, but I think my heart's still over there. And when you went back, did you tell them that you were living with HIV? They had guessed, but yes, I had told a couple of them. And because I was wanting to share that story with them, because I knew of them, you know, I I knew that. So I wanted them to not see me as as anything different. We, We are the same. Exactly. And did that bring you closer together as like a fierce support point of view? Like, did they see you differently? as as more connected most definitely yeah some more than others you know because there were some who didn't want to disclose themselves to me but they knew about me I made sure they knew about me 
but there was probably, yeah, one, two, three, there would have been four out of the 10 who, you know, became, we became very, very, very close. And that shows how important it is when, particularly when there's HIV related development projects and how important it is to have people living with HIV working in those projects to bring a whole new level of support and and compassion to that project and that also because of GIPA principles, which is a greater involvement of people yep. living with HIV in HIV-related projects. When you returned to Africa for two years, how did you manage, this is a practical question for people living with HIV who may want to volunteer in developing countries, how did you manage your treatment, like taking medications with you and having you know, regular blood tests to ensure that viral load is undetectable and CD4 counts is a high? Initially, I was I was put on to medication in the country. When I went back, I took six months supply with me from Australia that obviously, you know, we, we get free, which is wonderful. When I ran out of, of that, um, I could buy my own exactly the same or... Um, after a while, they allowed me to to get the um, the cheaper version of the medication that I was taking. So I didn't have any problems with that at all. So how much was the medication costing you per month when you were purchasing it in Africa? I think I was paying about four thousand rand, which is four hundred dollars per month. And when I got the the cheaper version, it was um, twenty. I can't even remember now. Was it twenty rand or twenty dollars? Oh, that's a big difference because like $400 a month is completely out of like un- impossible for somebody living and working in Africa, yeah. but $20 a month yeah. is is manageable. Um, you know, that's less than $1 a day. It is a, a um, it's a generic brand. And I do believe that Nelson Mandela had a lot of uh, sway in getting that happening. Because with the medications, people don't die. People live long, healthy, productive lives. Children don't end up being orphans. Um, parents can provide an income for their families that, and people aren't going to transmit the virus. You know, like, like what we call U equals U, undetectable equals untransmittable, which is backed by 20 years of scientific evidence. And it was great to hear you comment before about that government is wanting people, so many people, more people to be tested for HIV because once they're tested and they go on treatment, then the virus can't be transmitted. And at the end of the day, that's how HIV can be completely eradicated. I, w- I would like to see what the um, stats are in, in Swaziland now because there has been, you know, a huge change. Even while I was there, there was a big change with um, people being tested and treated. So, you know, if that continues, their their numbers are going to reduce. Yeah. And what? so what's your advice to, to people, particularly people living with HIV, who are wanting to volunteer in a developing country? Do it. Yes, do it. And like you, you actually independently funded your volunteering. And many of these developing countries, it, it is, it's quite reasonable to live there, isn't it? The cost of living is so much cheaper than, say, living in Australia. It was amazing, amazing, absolutely amazing. And I had, I had everything I needed. And that's, that's all we need to live, you know. But I come back to Australia and, and you've got all this stuff and you think, what on earth have I got all this stuff for? Yeah, yeah. And all the money that you're going to spend on like your phone bill, your internet bill, you know, your power bill, your, your gas bill, it's just never ending like when you add all that up. 
I just wanted to also ask you a bit about your new role as Chair of Positive Women Victoria. This is a new role that came about this year. I just wanted to know, how do you see Positive Women Victoria developing as an organisation and, and how the future of providing um, support and advocacy for women living with HIV? How do I answer this? So your ideas, like your big ideas. Going in with into the chair position after only being a board member for two months or, or four months or whatever it was, um, was a bit of a shock. But since then, you know, I, I think my brain has gone back to to the, uh, the good old days of managing things and getting involved. And the first thing I, I really wanted to do was to get the board to be a really close-knit, cohesive group of women working together as an amazing team. And that is really starting to happen. And so from that, you know, we're then looking towards the future to what we want to do. We don't have any major plans at the moment. Of course, there is what you're doing, you know, with the, the stigma. I feel this is the time to really end HIV stigma because we've got U equals U. The medications are, to me are like as good as a cure. No, we're not infectious, you know, and then, but the stigma is still left over from, like you're saying before, the, the days of the Grim Reaper. We're still dealing with that. Definitely, definitely. And the pandemic has been going now for 40 years mm. and we're still dealing with stigma and there's got to be a time where it has to end. Our peer support team and, and services, I think there's going to be some major change next year in that because we're just going through a process of a complete review, a very in-depth review of peer support services. And I'm fairly certain that a lot of change is going to come out of that. So, you know, watch this space. I think it's going to be a very interesting journey ahead in terms of how people are contacted, uh, where we take that, and then linking that in with the project that you're running with obliterating stigma would be wonderful. I like that. I like that word. Obliterating <laughs> stigma. So with, with Positive Women, we want to keep this organisation alive and well and looking to the future with whatever changes we need to make in order to accommodate the people who are our members. One of the initiatives that you are driving is an over 50s peer support group yes and that makes complete sense because now in Australia of the 30,000 people living with HIV nearly 50% of them are over 50 so these are so it's a big group of people and we're all going into you know our later years and there are so many issues with with aging and HIV particularly in the aged care sector and and getting the peer support from each other as we age most definitely. And you know, many years ago, I don't know if any, any of your listeners would have read Conversations with God from Neil Donald Walsh, but I was a bit of a devotee of things like that for some years. And one of the things that he, that he wrote about was, if there's something lacking in your life, be the source and do it. Yeah, great. And start it. What is lacking in my life is that connection with women of a similar age to me living with HIV. 
that's what I'm missing. That's why I decided to, not even as the chairperson, but just a woman of this age living with HIV, I want to get a group, a social group happening like similar age group that we can, we can bounce things off each other. We can talk about old age. We can talk about young age. We can talk about all sorts of things. And in that age bracket, I think it's really, it's different than having a mix of say 20s, 30s, 40s, and then the over 50s. So that's the reason for that yeah and it's like also supporting each other to achieve our dreams because we've got another 30 or 40 years of life it's like a new chapter of our life so as we begin this new chapter it would be fantastic to have that that peer support to encourage each other and bounce ideas and dreams and and even go volunteering in a developing country so you've got all this knowledge to share with as the next chapter there's you know we never run out of things that we can do Georgina you you are a real inspiration for women living with HIV to get out there and follow their dreams and turn those dreams into reality but finally I just wanted to ask you know why do you feel it's so important for women to share their story Women have always supported each other and talked to each other and I think we need to get this out there so that we can be seen as normal women and, you know, have have our story there and, and, and not feel embarrassed about it and not feel as though... You know we're we're ugly or we're dirty or or you know we're subhuman because we carry this thing for life. But you know women have always supported women, and yeah, I I just admire all of my women friends who have supported me um, as I have supported them. It's very important. Yeah, and I think we have to keep positive women Victoria alive and well and it is a unique organization I believe it's the only one of its kind Um, you know most other HIV organizations are mixed gender yes and you know we also need to remember that of the 38 million people globally living with HIV you know more than half of them are women and, you know, that's something we always need to keep at the back of our mind that, you know, we are we are not alone and we are really a very, very powerful force to be reckoned with. Yeah, it's always concerned me, you know, the number of women who are falling victim mm. to this virus because of heterosexual, their heterosexual relationships and not necessarily heterosexual relationships with their partner. You know, I think that's, that's what's happened to many many of the people that I know. Yeah, particularly the older women where they've been in married for many years and um, there's a secret. Their, their husband uh, is out there having sex with other men. There is now PrEP where pre-exposure prophylactic where people can take this medication and it will protect them from contracting HIV. That's freely available in Australia. But if you're in a, a long, long, um, you know, ongoing relationship with one man, um, you know, you're not going to take prep. Yeah. Why? Why would you? People do need to protect themselves, and and um, it's interesting that we we're talking about this in the time of COVID because you know a lot of people have done exactly what they have to do in COVID, but a lot of people don't do exactly what they have to do to protect themselves with um, sexual activities. So, yes, you did, right? It's just like COVID, we've proven people will wear masks, people will use hand sanitizer, just need to get them using condoms. Definitely.
Okay, Georgina, I thank you so much for, for sharing your story today on Our Stories Ending HIV Stigma. It's been fantastic speaking with you and you are such an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. And I hope that um, it works, you know, and, and people do listen to these stories and take note, take note and protect yourself. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you can listen when future episodes are posted. Please rate and review this podcast and share it. Our Stories is part of the Women and HIV Tell the Story project made possible by Gilead Sciences through the Gilead Together Grant Program and produced by Positive Women Victoria, a community-based support and advocacy organisation for women living with HIV in Australia. I'm Heather Ellis. Thanks so much for listening. Isn't it time we ended HIV's stigma once and for all? For more information about this episode, visit positivewomen.org.au.